Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work by the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand, and this episode, we're doing our discussion of Wolf's novella, Alien Stones, and I think we can just jump straight into it. Yeah, I think so. Well, I'm going to pull out all of my own tropes for this one, Brandon. We're going to talk about Star Trek, as we promised last time. <laughs> we're also going to talk about religion, which will surprise no one. But I want to start us off with a category that I'm calling humans, emotions, and rationality. That sounds promising. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, small, small category. <laughs> well, I've got three things in this category. But the first thing I want to talk about, Brandon, is Daw speaking about humans in space in this story. So Daw dislikes that humans bring a lot of comforts into space. And he's glad that humans are still primates with this instinct to hold on to a tree branch while they sleep. But at the bottom of that page, Daw praises the makers of this alien ship for being better naval engineers than his type of humans. And Helen, intuitively or empathically or, or empathetically, I suppose, knows that the builders aren't human and she dislikes them. But Daw thinks that they are a type of human and he likes their engineering and my question for you, Brandon, is why do they have such different responses to this ship, both in terms of understanding who made it, but also in liking it or disliking it? And to what extent is this wrapped up in their polar approaches to emotions and rationality? Daw sees the alien ship as a great work because it strips down everything to its pure functionality. There is nothing excessive or unnecessary on this ship. And for him, it really captures the essence of life. It dispenses with these fake ideas of cardinal directions that keep people comfortable in space. And if you're some kind of space fighter pilot is going to get you killed if you're thinking in terms of up or down or east or west or left or right. He likes how primitive it is, as you mentioned as well, where all you need to sleep in space is the knowledge that you just have to close your eyes and hang on to something. There is no necessity for your body to be facing or oriented in a certain direction because blood is flowing how blood is flowing. So for Daw, this is pure essence. This is raw material and raw functionality. For him, that is the height of engineering, of what engineering can achieve. We also get a weird bit earlier with Wad, who is kind of an idealized Daw. It's how Daw idealizes himself or remembers himself, who talks about how the earliest spacefaring things were vi like viruses, maybe. I, for, this, for me, this section is really interesting because it could indicate that humans themselves are seeded life of some kind from an alien population entirely. That what came before, what biologists and the intelligentsia misunderstood as bacteria or viruses were really just aliens from another civilization that was much smaller than our own. I think what makes Helen so uncomfortable, though, is that she views these emotional connections and ties to the material world as essential to what it makes a human being a human. And I think we see this contrasted a lot in our own world, particularly in the way 
maybe uh, people design systems of work or workflow or things like that, is that there is a, a lack of humanity in boiling everything down to the pure mechanistic function that you require of it. That what we're doing, what Helen sees happening, is that this is alien because no human would travel in space purely in terms of the mechanistic function required to travel in space, that we require these creature comforts, that the, the spacesuits themselves have shields that allow us to see one another's facial responses, to look at one another when we speak, even though you could turn that off, that there is much of humanity that is lost when it is boiled down to its pure mechanistic form. And that if you're working with that assumption, any other spacefaring civilization would probably have the same thing. And if these are the creature comforts of that civilization, there's nothing human about it. Yeah, that's right. But Daw misinterprets this, which I think is really interesting. And we learn a lot about Daw's character in his, his emotional response to this kind of bleak and really barren spaceship, right? This pleases him. He likes how big the ship is, how open, how lost he can get in these passageways from one section to another. And Helen even points out to him, or calls him on it perhaps, his love of isolation. We see this also when he doesn't want to have video conversations with other people. He wants to do audio only. Daw is someone who does not want to be around other humans. And I think that we see that manifesting here. But because he sees this ship as being stark and having all of this space, he's drawn to that. That appeals to him. To him, this feels like this is made by a type of humans who have shed their clinginess to creature comforts, right? As you say. And that really appeals to him. I think that there's something here that's going on where he thinks that maybe he's found a type of human who is more like him. But in fact, what he's found is aliens, machines. They're not even necessarily biological. That's not really clear to us. But these are not humans and they are machine-like at the very least. And he feels like he has more in common with them than he does with his own crew. Yes, but Daw is at odds with himself. He is distanced from himself in his own emotional calculation. And I say that a little ironically, in his own ability to calculate his emotional senses with this place. Daw himself relies upon creature comforts. He uses his command console with regularity. He interacts with Gladiator regularly. But most importantly, he keeps his Bible on the bridge with him. So even he who's looking at the alien ship as a platonic ideal of engineering and the bare bones required to travel in space and how great that would be, underestimates his own reliance upon human artifacts and the comfort they offer as he travels in the bridge alone on, on the gladiator. Well, I don't think that he's interested in shedding human artifacts. I think that he's interested in shedding human sentiment. So I'm not sure to say that he's using the communication system to do his job is good evidence for a conflict there. In fact, I think the, the, the way we see him use that communication equipment where he doesn't want to see the other person really suggests that actually this isn't a conflict for him. But I do think you're right about pointing to the Bible here, and we're going to have a whole section on religion, as I've promised. But there is a bit here where Daw is 
still having a connection to other people, and it is Helen herself. He's fallen in love with her. We get told here, when Dawes realizing that he's fallen in love with her, that people always fall in love with empathists. And the next thing I'd like us to talk about, Brandon, is really just to try to understand why that is. Wolf doesn't tell us. Why do people always fall in love with empathists? I think this is the great fantasy of a romantic relationship is that you can communicate without having to communicate. You can be understood (laughs) without having to speak your desires to the other person. I think the reason why everyone falls in love with empathists is, is that they are known without having to do any work to be known. And I think that's the great fantasy. It's kind of one of the great promises of the Christian religion that God knows us and that that is automatic and that we are not only known but loved. And I think another factor of the empathists is that they empathize with the enemy. And in order to do that, it's as though they love the enemy above their own people. And so to be known and loved without judgment is... I don't know, a fantastic treat. What a what a good thing that would be. And I think that is why all of these people fall in love with the empathists. Well, it strikes me that Daw is especially susceptible to this because his embrace of this stark alienship, this pride that he has for not needing a bed to sleep on, this violation of fleet protocol in not using the video chat whenever that's available suggest someone who doesn't just want to be isolated, but suggest someone who actually doesn't know how to be with other people and is embracing isolation rather than facing the awkwardness of not knowing how to do that, but that Helen seems to get him implicitly. And we see this when they're having their conversations, when they're both diagnosing the alien ship and discovering where the bridge is or sharing with each other their hypotheses about where the bridge is. I mean, this is like space flirting 101, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. And so he's really drawn to that. The here finally is someone who gets him, who understands him despite his awkwardness, despite his inability to really communicate, despite the fact that other humans are as alien to him as actual aliens. Right, and who's interested in him. And this is how the story ends, is with her confessing her interest in his early childhood, in his life. And that's a big part of the story, is his confession, in a sense, of his life to her. And his hope that she's learned the truth, because the truth is is something I think that Daw believes is safe with an empathist. And this is something that Star Trek really picks up on, is that Deanna Troy is not only the person who understands the needs of the alien culture, but who is also Picard's confessor. Yeah, something that's fun about comparing Helen here and Deanna Troy, or maybe better, is to compare Deanna Troy's paramour with Daw here, is that you know, Commander William T. Riker is nothing like Daw. He is someone who loves being a human, loves being biological, loves being carnal. He plays the jazz trombone. He likes to drink. He likes women. He's got cool facial hair. He 
knows that he's good looking and enjoys that about himself. So that's actually kind of a nice mirror for sort of seeing how Helen and Deanna Troy maybe are a little bit different. Yeah, maybe we could compare this relationship closer to like a Deanna Troy and Lieutenant Barkley type of situation. (laughs) Yeah, that's probably right. (laughs) Because Barkley also completely falls for Deanna Troy, even though that's never going to happen. Because in fact, he's too much like this dog character. That's a that's a great observation. One more question I have for you, Brandon, on this topic before we move into talking about Wad is, you know, this story ends almost kind of on a cliffhanger or, or sort of ends, you know, in the middle of these characters' lives, right? This was a glimpse into one episode that's happened to them. And this story really ends with the sense that something is going to happen in the immediate moments after this. But we as readers just aren't privy to that story because Wolf hasn't told it to, to us. Do you think that on the next page, the imaginary page that Gene Wolf never wrote, do Daw and Helen get together now that Helen is widowed? It depends on the time jump between the last page and the next page. I think it's possible, given Helen's willingness to believe that Daw has some empathetic tendencies to him as his nature, and that empathists are often paired, that her willingness to believe or indulge in this fantasy a little bit would allow for them to have a shared fantasy that would form the foundation of their romance. I just think it would be a horrible breach of trust and power for Daw and Young Meadow to get together so shortly after Young Meadow is widowed. It is clear that they care for one another in some way. It would be a terrible romantic storyline to have the formation of new love take place kind of on the the grave soil of the husband's death. I mean, truly, truly, this would be problematic for me if this were the case. But I would love to see her get reassigned and then years down the road have them get together. Maybe like a Picard and Crusher type of situation. I don't know. Something like that would work for me. Yeah, yeah. definitely don't try to date your subordinates under any circumstances, but especially not when they're recently widowed and maybe it's a little bit your fault. Uh, but I bring this up, Brandon, actually, just because one of the comments that Mark Aramini has on this story, one of the questions that he has about this story in his wonderful work of scholarship on these early stories, uh, Between Light and Shadow, he points to Daw as kind of a King David figure, King David from the Old Testament, who himself sent out a subordinate into a dangerous situation in the hopes that that subordinate would die so that he would be able then to have a romance with that subordinate's wife. Uh, Aramini points out a connection there. I wondered what you thought about that, Brandon. Do you think that Daw has actually sent Mr. Young Meadow into danger in the hope that he would die so that he could have a romance with Helen? I really don't see that taking place in this story. As much as I appreciate the kind of literary connection here, David is a real mess by the time he's spying on Bathsheba from his palace as she's bathing and decides that he's going to send this young man to the front lines of the battle um, so that he can take her as a wife. The real redemption of Bathsheba in these stories is that she produces the legitimate heir of David in the line of Christ. So if that's going on here, the meaning of that story is lost a little bit. I think it's fair to point to the power fantasy in the story of 
David and Bathsheba and make the connection there between Daw and Mrs. Youngmeadow. This is clearly part of the same kind of power fantasy that I think drives a lot of men. If this person were out of the way, I could do this, and how could I scheme to do that? I think it's part of a kind of masculine nature to hope for these sorts of things, though acting on them is, is entirely different. And Daw, to me, seems too honorable and too respectful of his duty, though he does take advantage of the situation to spend time with Helen Young Meadow. We see him often leaving her with other people so that he can attend to his duties. For this parallel to work, the story of David and Bathsheba, which is no great romance, by the way, (laughs) Um, um, would have to include David taking Bathsheba on a tour of the battlefields where her husband died, which is really not the case in that story at all. Yeah, I think it's an interesting idea that Mark posits here. And I should say, to me, just to be clear, that Mark does posit that as a question. But like you, I don't think that that's really what's happening here. I think Daw is a very different character than than David. He's in a different place in his journey. He's in a different position. And I think that this incident is really exploring a different type of emotion than the David story explores. With that put to bed, I think we should move on to talking about Wad here uh, in this, really emphasizing this category of humanity. So when Helen talks about the little stones that ancient people used to develop mathematics, Daw tells her that her sense of history is too strong. And then he thinks, like Wad's, what about Wad is it that Daw has in mind here? I'm not sure how to directly answer that question. So I'll answer in the circular way (laughs) that I've come to enjoy answering your questions about these (laughs) stories, Glenn. It's what we do here. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So let me just first start by saying that I would be comfortable believing that Wad is a real midshipman in training and not merely a simulation. That is something I'm comfortable believing about this story. And that there is something about the way that these midshipmen and captains are paired that allows the captains to idealize their youth and youthfulness and their humanity and their connection to Earth that allows them to be better captain. And I think that this is a type of problem. You're out, you're isolated, your duty isolates you. Your geography isolates you, and you have no real connection to other people or the stream of history that brought you into being. Daw himself has a strong sense of history, of at least naval tradition, that is always on his mind, whether he is explaining the roots of the midshipman program with pride or with shame, not allowing himself to be seen on camera. Wad, I think, is a real midshipman who is in training, who is on Earth. We're told explicitly that the midshipman training takes place on Earth, and who is temperamentally complementary to Daw's own psychology that keeps his connection with humanity strong, not just in the sense that he sees a familial resemblance, whether that is simulated or not is the question between himself and Wad, but in the sense that Wad is an idealized form of what he wants to believe about 
the world. And Watt is young enough to be able to carry that ideal. So to answer your question, Wad is Dawes sense of history embodied. And I think that's kind of my answer. Well, that's fascinating. And you've anticipated the second part of the Wad questions that I have. I probably should have put the what is Wad, who is Wad question first. But of course, as a professional historian, I'm immediately drawn to the, the first question that I asked you. I think that's the primary question. And the other question, the, this really very wolfy type of question uh, is secondary. But let, let's finish up the first question before we move, we move into who or what is Wad. So this line certainly jumped out to me as a historian, though it might have jumped out to me just generically as a reader, because it's a question that's left unanswered that wolf doesn't tell us why daw thinks that wad has an overdeveloped sense of history to me this seemed like it was relevant to this contrast between helen and daw this contrast between the emotional empathetic intuitive person and the rational scientific person and that wolf here or maybe daw maybe it's not wolf maybe it's just his character is positing historical thinking, right? Thinking about the past, thinking critically about people who've come before us and about the choices they've had to make and trying to understand historical societies, which is to say societies that are separated from Dawes in time as these alien shipbuilders are separated from him in space requires a type of empathy that seems strange and foreign to him. That was sort of what I took from that. And that Wad, as still just a midshipman, uh, as still a child, is still an emotional creature. He hasn't embraced logic and rationality and clinical observation the way that Dawes been able to do through, one, experience, and two, many years of isolation. Yeah, I guess I still think Daw is a very emotional person, potentially, on the empathic scale. And that he is in a habit of rationalizing these emotions rather than feeling them directly. He's always keeping them at a distance. He keeps a lot of himself at a distance. Part of the maybe psychological element of the story is that Wad is Daw, as is clear in the story, but really Daw's emotional sense of self. It is the thing that carries his emotional intuition that benefits him by allowing to continue to repeat to himself his own personal history, which is that of rationality, of being rationally developed. So I really agree with that reading as well. I think they're both really plausible. I think there's a lot going on here, both in terms of the structure of the story and the text itself, but also what's happening psychologically uh, as Wolf evokes psychology in this story. Well, I think that's a really great understanding of what's happening with Daw or who Daw is, that he might actually be this extraordinarily emotional person or just averagely emotional person, because I've been positing him as an unemotional person. But perhaps what's happening, right, is that he has lived this life of isolation because he's been groomed from childhood to be a captain, to be someone who is, by very definition of his identity, someone who is isolated from other people and and has to be. And that perhaps Daw here in making this claim about history and 
having an emotional sense of it, is actually making a comment about the fact that he has to suppress his own emotional response right to his personal past. But something that I think also strikes me about this is that he makes this claim about Helen's response to the past, that her sense of history is too strong when she's talking about how people figured out how to do math. But he goes on for quite a long time talking about who Watt is in terms of naval history that goes back to our 19th century, which I think that we have to understand is perhaps thousands of years in the past of this civilization. Is Helen's sense of history actually even any stronger than his own? No, and I really don't think that there's that much difference between these characters. Helen is frequently able to reach an emotionally intuitive understanding of the situation that turns out to be correct, unless it becomes too emotionally difficult to bear in the sense of her husband's death before Daw. Daw is, quote, nonplussed by her question about whether or not there are people still on board the ship. And three pages later, this is Daw's revelation from Polk is that through the rational deduction, we can now say for certain through some sort of empirical argument that there are people or entities still on the ship. And it's Helen's intuition that pushes Daw to suggest that the ship itself could be an entity. So I think that this shutting down of the emotional intuitive response to the situation is part of what makes a captain a captain, part of what the selection for a captain is, the ability to do this, to live in a purely rational universe. And perhaps part of the design of this as well is to select for empaths that captains will fall in love with so that they'll listen to the emotional intuition of a person who's trained in that because they can't deny their emotional response to that. So I think that's part of the balance of what's going on here in their relationship as well. Yeah, this is a great observation. I think you've really turned me around on my understanding of who Daw is. And as you're describing this character, the way you read Daw, Brandon, I am just seeing more and more that this is Captain Picard. So maybe someday... Daw will have an adventure where he's uh, struck by an alien probe and gets to live an entire life with an imaginary family and learns to play the flute and embrace his emotional <laughs> nature. Yeah. Well, let me just say I'm reading Daw's Picard because I love Picard and I watch TNG uh, a lot and that uh, I will read Picard into every starship captain I come across probably to the detriment of anybody's ability to create a better Starship captain. <laughs> well, and of course, I think most people know that I'm a Kirk guy, and maybe that's why I didn't relate with Daw very much, because he was really kind of the anti-Kirk in this story. But we'll talk more about Star Trek later. Let's, uh, let's get into something that you teased earlier, Brandon, which is this question that anyone who read along with has probably really been champing at the bit about, which is, what is Wad? Who is Wad? Now, you really shocked me when you said that you think that Wad is a real person, a real human, who is Skyping into the experience of the gladiator rather than, as Daw himself says and believes, a computer who is recording all of the adventures of the gladiator so that that data can be used in the simulation back on Earth. That was really fascinating to me. And I want to hear maybe a defense of, of that, but 
let me just sort of pose the question that I think that most readers will have had. And it's a question that Mark has as well. So the story ends with Helen asking Daw if the simulated captain that he himself saw during his training was an older version of himself. And Daw says no, but to me at least, the implication of Helen's question is that Daw is a clone or some other type of artificially created person. That all the spaceship captains are essentially the same genetic makeup. They've been manufactured over and over. They've essentially been bred to be captains with better technology, but really with the same spirit in which midshipmen were turned into captains in the 19th century. Maybe just the first open-ended question that I'll pose to you, Brandon, is just what do you think of that suggestion? That was my first reading of this story, the first time I read it in preparation for this podcast. But when I really went back and read it again and saw how explicit Daw was in his belief that Wad is a simulation that is designed to collect the experiences of starship captains so that new captains can be trained as midshipmen. And the amount of time that Daw spends talking about the naval tradition of midshipmen and how important it was, that Wolf is communicating to the reader through these things that there is something very similar going on here. Of course, uh, midshipmen on real vessels had all of the dangers of the real ship really within their grasp. They could have a bone broken and get gangrene. They could be thrown overboard in a storm. They could lose their life, which would mean the training would be without value. And, And so that maybe is a problem that has been overcome in this society. To answer your question directly, I think we really need to look at the way simulations are used in this story. Mr. Youngmeadow, the only other simulation in this story explicitly besides Wad, is chosen specifically for his ability to encounter Daw and Helen in a way that would evoke an emotional response and an emotional bond rather than a fear response or the response of a stranger or an alien. The fact that Mr. Youngmeadow was a simulation at the end of the story did not make him any less real. All it meant was that the image was used in order to create a situation where the outcome was better for both parties in this encounter. I want to suggest that the same thing is happening at the end of the story where this question is raised that the midshipmen in training are actually assigned to real ships as computer programs, the same way Gary Sinise was in Apollo 13, (laughs) in a similar situation where they can troubleshoot on the ground, where they can run different analysis without the the real threats of being a starship captain, and that the simulation is that is in purely the image that the computer simulates the real midshipmen to look as if they were the child or the progeny of the captain, and that young boys don't need anybody to look like them to imitate. Young boys imitate character. And so that Daw's answer is that the crusty bastard didn't need to look like his father to teach him about what it means to be a good captain. And that 
that's the way simulation works in this story. So that's my reading, and that's my defense of Wad being a real midshipman. Of course, Wad is daub backwards, which I don't know what that means. It's just a choice, I guess, Wolf made. But the cloning was my first instinct, and I've come around to this other reading in preparing and doing a a bit of a closer reading, a close enough reading for the recap. Yeah, I want to engage with you on this. I'm really interested in getting to the heart of this. In fact, I'm more interested now that you've thrown this gauntlet down than I was prepping for our discussion here. (laughs) This question seemed a little bit obligatory to me, actually, when I was prepping, but now I'm super into it. But before I maybe play devil's advocate here or try to uh, really may- maybe make you prove your your claim for the sake of fun and uh, excitement. Let's dig in on embracing Daw as a clone and Wad as a clone, that they are genetically the same, that they are copies of some human who is genetically the perfect captain and then goes through this type of training regimen on orders of thousands or tens of thousands to man these starships. Let's assume that's true, because there's some other questions I want to ask about that. If that is true, if if the reason that this thing on the other bridge is Daw spelled backwards and looks like Daw is that they're clones, that they've all just been 3D printed from some genetic makeup, if that's true, why doesn't Daw know it? Or... If he does know it, why does he lie to Helen about it? This is not something I think that Daw is lying to Helen about because Daw is a man who has pride in how he got to where he is. The selection process in Daw's mind is something to have pride about, that he was chosen right after he took his basic science course out of cadet school to be a midshipman, to be a captain, and that... He was assigned to one crusty bastard to watch the adventures of that starship from afar and act as if he were that captain acting in that scenario. His pride in the naval tradition of captain selection and how it's come back is a big part of it. And so this this again goes back to me to the problem of simulation and Dawes' rejection of it and out of hand. In the same way that Helen tries to reject the most meaningful relationship in her life as a simulation, Daw cannot believe that his life is that of a clone who was forced to engage in this charade for the sake of manning a starship. Another problem I have with the clone thing is, yes, sure, everybody falls in love with the empaths. But there's more to falling in love with somebody than their mind or what they maybe offer you in terms of a certain kind of fantasy. I do think the empaths are chosen to break down the emotional barriers of captains. I think that's a very much a part of this story. But it would also mean to me that the empaths are clones because they would all have to appeal to the same man. Every empathic woman would have to appeal to the same man. And though these men may be formed by different experiences after training, all of their core experiences would be the same, unless they're training with the different situations, which means they, it just gets way too complicated for me as a storytelling technique or a, a facet of this story, rather than the fact that 
there is something going on with the images, which I think is a core part of this story, this insecurity of the captain's image, the way the images are played with with simulations, Wad's image as the as looking like a child of Daw, Daw's refusal to accept that he could ever turn into the image of the captain he was a midshipman under. There's a lot going on with images in this story that I think is too much a part of what this story means to dismiss merely as cloning, as genetic copying. Well, you poke some great holes in the notion that there is cloning going on here, that there's sort of 3D printing of a captain and that all starship captains are the same. I don't really think that I buy that. It wasn't my response to the story either. But now that you've made this other suggestion that doesn't believe what Daw says is what's going on, I want to try to poke some holes in that because I think that will be fun. So just to refresh, you've posited that Wad is a real person back on Earth who's a midshipman. He's 10 or 12 and is going to be a starship captain someday. And that he is, despite the vast distances involved here, is somehow Skyping in to the Gladiator and is experiencing the Gladiator's adventures in real time and is getting to talk to Captain Daw about the choices that he's making and to offer his own suggestions for how he might do that and to engage with the adventure as if he's actually there. So some of the problems that I have with this are thinking about what Daw says that's actually happening, which is that it's all being recorded so that over a period of two years, midshipmen back on Earth can be given a simulation in which they are just bombarded with adventure after adventure, that it's an intense, almost a, an, an amplified training period where all they do is deal with problems, solve problems, have adventures, and struggle, and that in that intense two-year period, being thrown into the, the gauntlet or the crucible, perhaps, they then are equipped to handle any situations. The value of that is that the experience of actually being on the Gladiator has to be 99% nothing. They're just traveling. That very rarely are they ever actually doing anything. And in fact, I think we can posit that this encounter with the alien ship is the first thing they've done in two years maybe 10 years. They've possibly not encountered another adventure to have, another thing to do, because space is vast. And the time it takes to travel from place to place is immense. And so I don't think that really would work for the type of training that these people need. Is not part of the experience of being a Starship captain, as we've talked about Daw being well-suited for and well-adapted to, learning to enjoy isolation and vast emptiness. That has to be a part of the training. You can't just pump people full of activity for two years and then put them into a place where nothing happens. The other maybe response I have to that is that if if my suggestion that there is something going on with images in this story and simulation, if there's something to that, then there's no reason Daw is the only captain assigned to Wad as a midshipman. Wad might be assigned to many of them because the images can be changed. And there might have 
a vast number of things going on. We know that there are a number of humanoid colonies going on out there, and that each of these midshipmen, we don't know how many there are, probably not a lot, because it seems like a very special selection, are maybe assigned to four or five captains to be able to train to the number and variety of things that come up while still training them for the sense of isolation that's required of um, a successful captain. So that's that's my response to that. I'm going to I'm going to fight this all night, Glenn. <laughs> well, we won't take up any more time with it. I'll just say that I'm not convinced of your hypothesis here. I'm not convinced either of the hypothesis that there's cloning happening here. My reading of this is to take Daw at face value that the program he describes is actually the program that's happening, but I think this in some ways is the wolfiest of puzzle questions that we have in this story and I imagine listeners must feel like they've got an answer and I would love to hear uh, what they have to say on the forum. To me, this question, because of the way it closes the story, is the most thematically relevant puzzle to this story. The rest of the puzzles I'm not as interested in. Well, let's put that question to bed and we'll just invite people to, to comment on the forum. And let's move into the thing that has me really excited, which is religion. Well, I'm going to start us out in this topic, Brandon, with, I think, a pretty small question. And it's just about this presence on the bridge of the Old and the New Testament. So the question I have is this. Wolf makes a special point of saying that these exist on Dawes Bridge, but they aren't on the replica bridge where Wad is. Why aren't they on the replica bridge? And why are they on the real bridge in the first place? I think it's clear in this story that Daw has had some sort of religious conversion or some innate belief in in Christianity. To me, the fact that they're not on the alternate bridge speaks to a certain kind of conversion based on my reading of this story. If they were all clones and they were all the same person, they may be on all the bridges. And this story doesn't give us enough about what it means to be a clone to really have us detail that meaning. To me, this signifies, one, that Daw is an individual, two, that he has had some kind of conversion moment. He is very overtly a Christian of some form, and since it's Wolf, we can assume he's a Catholic, and that this belief in Catholicism and Christianity is part of what guides him as a captain. Perhaps it even speaks to this notion of images and the deception of the image in the story and the things that bear false images is a big part of the story as well. So I think that Daw is well protected from the illusion of the false image in the story, which goes against my reading because he is convinced that Wad himself is a computer simulation. But I think that's all it signifies, that Daw is a Catholic man and that this is a crucial part of his being. Well, I think you're absolutely right that this is meant to highlight the realness, the personness of Daw and the non-personness of Wad, either because he's a computer, as Daw suggests, or because he's someone who's on Earth and is Skyping in and maybe has his own Bible next to him, the real person of him back on Earth, that there's no need for that on the replica bridge. Something that interests me about the presence, though, of Christian scripture on the actual bridge is 
that we know that Daw uses them, right? Because he quotes scripture twice, once out loud and once only in his mind. But we're also told when these are introduced, and the only line that these are pointed out to us, that the metal covers of these are battered. They're dented from banging up against other metal. They're used. They're heavily used. To me, this spoke to the loneliness and isolation of Daw. This, to me, conjured up an image of Daw in command of a ship that can hold half a million people when it needs to, that has thousands of people on it right now. Every type of specialist imaginable is on this ship. But Daw sits alone on the bridge when nothing is going on in these years of nothingness, of just routine maintenance of the ship and minute course corrections and just dullness in the black emptiness of space, that he's not interacting with his crew. He's only interacting with God. I think that's partially true. I I think I want to maybe amend your reading a little bit by saying that the captain is the only specialist on being a captain. And so that's what makes that type of duty lonely. The hospital staff probably all has their quarters close by or gets together for trainings or something like that. There's no additional training required for a captain the same way there is for other specialists on the ship. The captain trains by acting, and that's a big part of his spiel about the whole role of the midshipman. The the captain is a captain because he is subordinate to no one. He trains by acting like a captain. So I don't want to dismiss the isolation out of hand because that is a big part of what being a captain means. But we are also told that he often has dinner with the young meadows, and perhaps that is relevant to this story, but it could also mean that he eats dinner with other high-ranked people on his crew. The general communication channel is open all the time. We know that he's in communication with engineering and with Polk and with Moak, his second-in-command. I think the design of the ship is isolating in its nature. I think you're right to point out all the imagery and instances of isolation and how they apply specially to Daw. But I think that when there's no one else around to distract you and your duty is to make minute course corrections on a ship that can run itself, that requires nothing of you other than to make decisions every once in a while, or to be the empty figure of authority that people need in order to accomplish a mission, that you do look for someone who maybe understands your position. And in the vast emptiness of space, that might just only be God. Yeah, thank you for pointing out the clear instances that we get told that Daw and his second-in-command, Moak, have dinner with the Young Meadows. I'd forgotten that detail, though that then does call in the question of who's the third in command who's actually on the bridge during those moments. It's Data. (laughs) Of course it is, right? Who's probably not reading the Bible. Though no, that, definitely not. <laughs> though that's a great question. Um, <laughs> all right, well, let's leave this behind. To me, this was a real puzzle. What's it doing on the bridge? I'd love to hear what listeners have to say about this. There's too much meatier topics here under the heading of religion that I really want to get into. The first of these is this invocation of the marriage at the resurrection. Now, the link between Helen and this passage from Matthew that Daw thinks about at the end is that Daw is wondering if he can marry her now that her husband is dead. That's what makes him think of marriage. But there's actually, I think, much more going on 
in this invocation of Scripture in this moment. In particular, Wolf doesn't finish verse 30. Instead, he ends the sentence with an ellipsis. So we as readers are left wondering how that line concludes. What's the end of the sentence there? But before we get to that, I want to actually bring us back to some other lines in the text. So when Daw is talking about how he sleeps in zero gravity just by holding onto a wire in his cabin, he says that he thinks God intended for humans to be out here leaping between the worlds. Later, Daw talks about the nature of these aliens they found, and when Helen asks if the ship is perhaps alive or sentient, or if the crew are robots, Daw says, I doubt if our terms are applicable to them. So for Daw, there's a spirituality or perhaps even a religiosity to exploring space, right? This is a divine mission of sorts for him. And they've never encountered non-human life until now. And Daw is sympathetic to the idea that what this life is, is so alien as to defy human understanding. So now I want to bring in the end of this line of Matthew 22:30. The words that Wolf omits that he leaves us wondering about are, but are like angels in heaven. So here's a story about a strange sentient life in space that ends with us thinking about angels in heaven. So my question for you, Brandon, is not, is anyone Jesus in this story? Though it's about basically the same thing. Thank you for that. (laughs) My question is, are these aliens angels? If they were angels, or let's say some non-human creation made by God, then I would have to think this story has more in common with the Jacob's Ladder story of the Old Testament than the David and Bathsheba story. That this is a man who is encountering the divine, encountering God or angels through his conflict with his sense of promise based on being a human being. I don't know that that's what's going on in this story. I think Daw couldn't be happier. His conflicts are, I think, more about the marriage than the types of beings he encounters. His conflict is really about the kind of love he has for this woman. I will say this, though, that the omission of angels is obviously on purpose because this is Wolf, but it could be just because he doesn't want to actually evoke angels in this story to confuse the reader. It's dangerous ground, though, I think, when we're talking about a wolf story. Yeah, I would have noticed it less if it had been in the text. Right, right. But I think when we're talking about angels and we're talking about the Catholic relation with creation, angels are created on a higher order than man, and they are a separate creation from man. And so perhaps this omission of language is really a reflection of Dawes' inability to come up with the right terminology. In the same way that he omits the word angel from the passage he thinks about, he also refuses to use it when he's talking about a different kind of intelligent creation other than man. And maybe the parallel is in absence here rather than in its presence. So I'll just say up front, I don't think these are angels. But I love asking you these questions, mostly for the spit, <laughs> mostly because I love the spit take. <laughs> They're clearly not angels. Angel just means messenger, you know, envoy, mail person, postal employee. That's clearly these machine or semi-machine life forms 
have not been visiting Earth and carrying messages from the divine creator. That's just not inherent in the story here. But it seemed to me that Wolf is trying to emphasize that these aliens, even though they might actually be completely machines or bionic, machine-like in some sense, are another of God's creations. That while they're alien from humans, they're not alien from God. That these are all God's children. I think that that couldn't be more explicit in this story, and that that Dawes' Catholic faith allows him to encounter this intelligent being as one of God's creations. And this, I think, speaks to our ongoing project about looking at Wolf in terms of his development of his robots, that whether it's by accident of human creation, humans create consciousness like their own, or through entirely new type of robotic-like being, that the Christian faith, at least, if not human ethical positions that are worth defending, require us to encounter all life as worthy of dignity and protection. And this is like 14 episodes of TNG, by the way. (laughs) It is that for sure. But I do think this is also a huge component of Wolf's mission as a writer, as a speculative fiction writer. And I I just want to point out that I don't think it's coincidental that this story in The Island of Dr. Death and other stories and other stories is immediately followed by La Bafana, which is a story that we haven't actually covered yet for the podcast. That was one that you and I chose to practice on quite some time ago. But La Bafana is a story that is about bringing the message of Christ to aliens on other planets. And I don't think it's coincidence that Wolf has these stories back to back in this collection. That's an excellent point. Yeah, more than bringing just the message of Christ in La Bafana, and this is a spoiler, Christ himself, I think, appears on that planet. So, yeah, I think in this story, Wolf is saying something about how a legitimate Christian position of faith is not threatened by anything the universe has to show us, because all it demonstrates is the wonder of God's creation over and over and over again. And this is Dawes' posture towards this discovery. And that's demonstrated by his automatic response to the young Mrs. Youngmeadow, who says, people are all that matter. And Dawes' response is to other people, sometimes, which is to say that we don't necessarily even matter to each other all that much if that's the position you're going to take. But more than that, there may be more than people out there than our categories can comprehend or understand. And it's worth taking the advice of this creature that they encounter before acting to stop and think about what the encounter means. And that's exactly what Daw does. Yeah, you raised some great points there. So something that jumped out to me in the it's only people that matter, well, to other people sometimes bit, is that what Helen is missing is that if you're a sentient machine and someone comes on the ship and breaks your non-sentient machine, that's the equivalent of someone coming into my home and murdering my cat or my dog. I'm going to be upset about that. I'm going to also see that person as a violent intruder who needs to be stopped. To me, that was the the sort of metaphor that Wolf was invoking there. 
Yeah, for sure. I read it more as we are so different in terms of being that you came in and broke something to get our attention. It might not even be as far as break as, as killing a cat or a dog, but it's just breaking a computer to see how it works. What's the internals? I mean, Polk does this, right, in the story. And I and I kind of made it, uh, an allusion to showing her the guts of the ship. They're doing surgery on this entity because they don't understand what it is in its whole. They can only see its true being from a distance. And once they're inside it, it's kind of like a bit of a fantastic voyage type of situation. And in the same way, they take apart first the spacesuit of Mr. Young Meadow. And then not only does that disintegrate, but he begins to leak out of it. His physical being leaks out of it. And that's part of the exchange at the end where the thing says, you've seen some of us and now we've seen some of you. In other words, we've done surgery on one another. This has been a huge catastrophe. Let's (laughs) just take a step back and think about what all this means. Yeah, that's a great observation. That totally escaped me that they have violently explored each other's anatomy and are deciding to pause at that bit and to each take a step back and to rationally or nonviolently decide how to proceed. That's a great observation. I hadn't thought about that before, and I want to bring that up in a minute. But I actually want to go back to bring up something else that hadn't occurred to me until you brought it up. And maybe this isn't something we want to spend a whole lot of time on, but it might be something we want to invite listeners to weigh in on, is that I completely missed how overtly Wolf is talking about evolution in this story. To me, evolution and Christianity are not at odds with each other. I know they are for a lot of people. To me, they are not. They never have been. I miss that that's a thing that's going on in culture sometimes, but it's clearly happening here, right? Wolf is explicitly advocating for a cosmology in which a god, the god of the Old and the New Testament, can have created not just the planet Earth, but the universe, and can still allow for creatures to have biologically evolved. We get this in the discussion about the design of spaceships, but that, in fact, there can be specially created beings who are not human and who have perhaps also evolved on their own separate line, and that also humans can leave the planet Earth and continue to change in ways that make groups of humans alien from one another, and we're all still God's creatures. That was not something that I had consciously thought of as going on in this story until you brought that up, Brandon. So I'm really grateful that you did, because it's so clearly happening here. Yeah, I think I want to leave this to to our listeners to kind of pick up and discuss in the forums. Yeah, I'd be really excited to hear what people have to say about this. And I know that we're going to get, in fact, very shortly, Wolf dealing with evolution and genetic engineering and the manipulation of the of life and the creation of new life. I would love for listeners to write in about how they respond to that. In this story, there's one more thing I want to bring up in the topic of seeing explicitly these machine-like aliens as another type of God's children is that wrapped up in Daw's understanding of humanity's mission, of humanity's true nature. It's sort of divine... I'll just use the word mission again. Divine mission is to go out and leap among the worlds, leap between the worlds. Wrapped up in that is this idea that God's variety of creatures, humans, these machine aliens, hundreds, thousands, millions, billions of other creatures that we haven't met yet, 
is that we are actually going to meet each other while leaping between the worlds, right? That seems to be here in Wolf's cosmology that that is our mission, our purpose, that God's plan is for us to encounter each other and to interact. And I don't know what Wolf thinks we're going to do at that point. Let's start this conversation here, which I don't think needs to be too long, with Wolf's insistence on referring to the Navy and the naval, the British naval traditions of the late 18th and early 19th century. Wolf, we know, is an avowed fan and reader of Rudyard Kipling, who was a big proponent of the virtues of colonization. Wolf is also an American from Texas who must, on a felt level, understand the virtues of Manifest Destiny and the frontier and the arguments for expansion to the West. And what I'm trying to say here is that I think Wolf is implicitly making an argument for not just Christianity, but the Western tradition of Christianity that can be a light to all nations, but also in his science fiction, all worlds. And I think that's really all I have to say about that. Yeah, I don't have a lot to say about this topic either. There, there, there's one thing I want to, to point out. I don't really have a question here, but I, I want to point out that on this topic, in this line of thinking, both the Old Testament and the New Testament passages that Wolf quotes in this story refer to the judgment of God in some way. And I, I think this is really important. Matthew twenty two thirty, this is what we get at the end, is, is talking about the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead immediately precedes the last judgment in Christian eschatology. When we get the mention of the beating of swords into plowshares from Isaiah, that text, Isaiah chapter 2, is about God serving as a judge between peoples who, because of God's judgment, will be able to beat their swords into plowshares because, with God in charge, there will be no more need for war. And, of course, much of the imagery of this story is martial, right? We have, the ship is named Gladiator, and we know it's a warship, right? And the conversation with the aliens ends with the question of whether or not these people will be friends or enemies. And I think that Wolf here is playing with this notion with this encounter between humans and aliens as requiring the presence of God to mediate it. I agree with you 100%. And I think it, it really reinforces what I believe to be Wolf's belief that the Western light, the Western tradition of Christianity and Catholicism is a saving grace and a saving faith for the world. And as problematic as we see the British imperial system today, the arguments for it were all caught up in this other great hope of Christianity, that is, until every tribe and nation and tongue is converted to the faith of Christianity, Christ can't return. So a lot of these early arguments for colonialism and imperialism are really rooted in the Christian promise of Christ's return. And that is part of uh, Kipling's arguments, for instance, in like the, the White Man's Burden. It is a justification for a lot of things that we regard as horrors. But if you are a person of faith who really believes that apart from a 
kind of cynical cultural export that the the light of that faith will improve the lives of the people around it through its virtues, through justice and mercy and charity and compassion. If you believe those things, then there's no reason to distrust the kinds of systems that create the tradition of seafaring adventure stories that we're engaged with in Alien Stones. <laughs> you raised some great points there, Brandon, and something that I just hadn't thought about until you emphasized how clearly the British Empire is evoked in this story. I maybe had the question all wrong. The question I was trying to get a spit take out of you with was, are these machine aliens angels? But is the better question, are we the angels? Are we the ones who are meant to be bringing the message of God to these machine aliens? I think the the word angel kind of complicates the question in, in a way that we've already discussed. Well, let, let's not say angel. Let's, yeah. just, let's just translate it into English. Are we the messengers? Because we have the message already, right? Yes. Yeah, I think that is that is a big piece of this story. And we're going to see a lot of Wolf's post-colonial attitudes coming up very shortly in our podcast in the next couple months. Um, and, and his really strong attacks on the violations of these kinds of promises uh, that we've evoked within Christianity in this story. And I think he's even playing with that idea here, where the messengers, the explicit messengers of the true religion are the first violators of the principles and maybe even the bodies of the people that they're going to spread the message to. Yeah, I think that's a great reading of this text. It, it totally escaped me. I had it completely inverted. It's an amazing conversation for my understanding of this story. I know I'm going to be up all night thinking about that. But let's just leave listeners with that question and invite them to come to the, the forums and weigh in about how they read that. And let's move in finally to our promised and much teased <laughs> conversation about Star Trek. Of course, listeners know that uh, I also am the co-host of a Star Trek podcast called Lower Decks, uh, which covers Star Trek Discovery. And I'm a Star Trek novice. I mean, I've been taking the past two and a half or three years to watch TNG, and that's about as much Star Trek as I've watched, though I grew up watching episodes here and there in my parents' bedroom on Saturday evening or Friday evening or whatever. I've really come to love the show in a way I hadn't expected. Yeah, I love that Star Trek is something where you can say, well, I've only watched 100 episodes of it. I'm a novice. Uh, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but that is what Star Trek is. And of course, I have Star Trek tattoos. This Star Trek is really my lifeblood. And so it's possible, of course, to make a lot of connections between this story and Star Trek. And I'll say that in his work, Between Light and Shadow, Mark Aramini points to an article by the other wolf scholar, Robert Borsky, which is actually entitled Star Trek and Alien Stones. So there's a lot of work out there already about this. And Borsky's article is really about how the core trio of Star Trek, the original series, that is Kirk, Spock, and Bones, represent different types of love. And then Borsky goes on to explore how Wolf is doing something similar here. And it's actually a really interesting, really compelling argument but I don't want to talk about that here, but I do want to encourage listeners to go check that out. What I do want to talk about is 
the parallels between Alien Stones and the very first original series Star Trek movie, Star Trek The Motion Picture, which came out seven years after this story. Now, we've already joked about how Helen Youngmeadow is essentially Deanna Troy from Star Trek The Next Generation, but Troy and her sometimes romantic partner, the first officer of the Enterprise, William Riker, we've already talked about him, both of them were based on characters who appeared in Star Trek The Motion Picture. Deanna Troy is developed from the character Ilya, and William Riker is developed from the character William Decker. Star Trek The Motion Picture is about a sentient machine that is threatening humanity. The Enterprise is dispatched to deal with the problem, and they solve the problem by talking to this machine, which is something that no one else has been able to do. And all of this gets started when Ilya, the character who becomes the Star Trek empath character, is killed and replaced by a mechanical duplicate of her that the sentient machine has constructed for the sole purpose of being able to communicate with the humans. This is the exact plot of this story, roughly speaking. I mean, obviously, you have a bunch of different character dynamics and, and certain different plot dynamics that need to be worked out in the motion picture, but the plot is remarkably similar. Now, you mentioned Alan Dean Foster. Did, what, what involvement did he have with any of these characters or the, the motion picture? Right. So, Alan Dean Foster wrote the script for Star Trek The Motion Picture. He actually has very few screen credits. He's actually a novelist. He's written a number of his own novels. And then he's also been a huge novelist within Star Trek, which is to say that he's done the novelizations of Star Trek films and episodes, and has also generated a lot of original fiction within the Star Trek universe. Yeah, I think he's won a bunch of awards for his original fiction as well. He's a pretty well known, at least in the 70s and 80s, science fiction fantasy writer. And he just came out with a new novel, you know, within the past year. Yeah, he's a really great writer. I've read a lot of his Star Trek novels, and I've enjoyed them. And I've read a number of his other pieces. And I've really quite liked them as well. And I just want to be clear to listeners, I'm not accusing Alan Dean Foster of plagiarism. That's not what has happened here. That's the creative process. All writers are also readers. Wolf makes a huge deal of that in his stories, as we've pointed out as recently as the last story we covered in Slaves of Silver. What's happened here is that Alan Dean Foster in 1972 was a subscriber to one of the five, probably all of the five science fiction magazines that were published in America, read this story and thought, that's a cool idea. I could take that idea and run with it in another direction. And ultimately, that became this Star Trek movie. It's not to be clear. It's not plagiarism. No, this is, and this is a big way of how science fiction writing works. And this is part of the community of science fiction writers is the playing off of one another's ideas in order to tease out new types of stories, to tease out new types of futures, to to play with the plausibilities. I kind of envision this as Wolf fixing himself a drink and grabbing a bag of potato chips, as he's known to do, and catching an episode of Star Trek as a rerun some night when maybe Rosemary was out with the kids and he had a night to himself. And he thought, you know what's a thing Star Trek never addressed? and sat down to write a story about it. And then Alan Dean Foster, six months later, a year later, reads this story in orbit and says, man, you know what would make a great Star Trek story? And that's how this generated. Yeah, and that's awesome. 
I, I really think that this story really does feel like Gene Wolfe addressing everything to him that Star Trek lacked. For him, I think when he's watching the original series, the, the implausibilities lie in the comfortable chairs and the oxygen-breathing atmosphere and the everybody's a humanoid. Every single person is a humanoid that they encounter and yet they, they treat them as alien because they recently encountered them. But what if humans went to the stars in Egyptian times or human or, or human beings themselves were seated by pond scum, something like that, where he's saying, we are missing huge opportunities here <laughs> to address what's going on in these stories. And I, I feel like Alien Stones, though a piece of it may have become a, a Star Trek film, is itself a response to Star Trek, the original series. And to me, this really just points out this continuum, this great continuity between reader and writer that Wolf loves to be a part of and loves to point out to his readers how much he is also a reader while also being a writer. And maybe on that note, we should take a moment to invite our own listeners to write stories in this universe. What are the other adventures of Captain Daw? What happens to Captain Daw after this? What happens to Helen Youngmeadow? I'd love to read those stories. What's your creative response to this Gene Wolfe story. I will read anything any of you write as long as it's not Daw, Young Meadow slash fiction. Yeah, I think we have a pretty strong policy against slash fiction here on the podcast. (laughs) Well, with that injunction given, I think that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects, as always, at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know who or what you think WAD actually is, or address any of the other issues we've raised in this discussion episode. And before we go, a reminder that if you want to support the show and help us reach our goal of doing an episode every week instead of every other week, especially with the fifth head of Cerberus looming around the corner, please check out our Patreon site and consider chipping in. We have a bunch of great bonus content on that site where Glenn and I dive into other avenues of science fiction. We cover the first episode of Firefly that aired. We have some great science fiction stories. We tease our weird fiction podcast. Glenn and Valerie have some great additional Star Trek episodes they cover. Yeah, there's a lot of Star Trek on there. Yeah, there's just some great stuff. And it's all available for a dollar a month. And though a dollar a month will get you that content More than that, $5 a month will help us reach our goals faster and allow you to contribute to our polls in a more meaningful way and help us commission stories that you want to hear too. Well, next time we'll be covering the story, The Recording, which you can find in the collection Stories from the Old Hotel, and it's also in The Best of Gene Wolfe. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.